We're starting a new series. <clears throat> and the, the series is to take us from um, uh, uh, Thursday afternoon, good, uh, just before Good Friday, so Thursday afternoon, walk us through that night. Then um, tonight we're going to go from the, about 7.30 to Thursday night till about 8 o'clock Friday morning. Then, in a couple weeks, the plan is to begin at 8 o'clock in the morning and go through the crucifixion on into the resurrection, and then the following Wednesday to go from the resurrection through all of the post-resurrection appearances and to find out what we can learn through all of that. Um, tonight, I'm excited to have the privilege of talking to you about Judas and where did he fit in and what did he do and why was he necessary and why did they need to rely on him and so let's let's unpack that shall we that is the right answer yes because that is what we're going to do tonight um, but before we begin how many know we like to celebrate people here yes so Happy birthday to you, Pastor Jeremiah, 41 years young, woo, yeah baby. So for me, you know, oh mercy, look what we've done. Birthday, Pastor Jeremiah, happy birthday to you. Are you one? Are you two? Oh, I'll pay for that one later, huh? Yes. But tonight I have the mic, so. All right, let's pray. Father, we need you. We're not afraid to admit it. We're not afraid to shout it from the mountaintops. We are a people desperate for you, for a contact with you, desperate for a new touch with you, desperate for a revelation of who you are in our lives, de desperate for renewal, God, desperate for awakening, desperate for our country to come back to you. We are a people who are in desperate need for you to show up. So God, we ask that you would begin to show up through all of those things by opening your word to us tonight. In the matchless name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to do this a little bit differently tonight. I'm not going to be expositing on a, special, a single passage, though there will be scripture that we're going to bring in as we go through. But what I want to do is I want to begin by laying out the timeline and then going back and pulling out certain pieces of it. So um, we're going to start with this fateful timeline because it's a timeline that begins earlier in the week of Jesus' betrayal and ends with his betrayal, arrest, and his sentencing to death. So as we begin that timeline, uh, and can I tell you that this is going to be easier if you're on the app um, because the timeline you're going to see here is going to be on the app. You're not going to need to write it down. Um, so if you go to GR the GR First app, how many of you know where to find all this? GR First app, go there at the very bottom of the page in the middle. It says Thrive. 
So click on that, and at the top of the page, you'll see my smiling face. Click on that, and then halfway through the page, it'll say notes. Click on notes, and you're going to see everything important I'm going to say. So if you drift off, it's going to be all right. Wow. All right. Tough crowd. All right. Tuesday. This fateful timeline begins on Tuesday of the Passion Week. Uh, that week that ends with the Last Supper, the crucifixion of Christ, and then ultimately his resurrection. And on Tuesday, we see, first of all, Jesus being anointed by a woman. And that really, as we're going to see in a minute, kind of gets things rolling for what's going to happen later in the week. Because when, Jew, when that uh, woman anoints Jesus for his burial, it flips a switch in Judas, and he goes out from that place determined that this is not the Messiah he was expecting or looking forward to having, and so he's going to go and offer his services to the chief priests. That's Tuesday. We move forward to Thursday. And you see the timeline that's there beginning at about 6.30 on Thursday night. Now, these times are approximate. Um, they're the best approximation that I can come up with based on all the data that I've been able to gather. But at about 6.30 on Thursday, the Passover meal, the Last Supper, begins. It is a ways into that, about 7.30, that Judas leaves the Last Supper. Satan has entered him, and he takes off. Around 8.30, now the Last Supper ends. And what happens between 7.30 and 8.30 is just so beautiful, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. Around 9 o'clock that evening, they arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane. Around 9.15, after instructing the disciples, Jesus leaves Peter, James, and John to go pray for the very first time by himself. About an hour later, he comes back, 10.15, he returns to find Peter, James, and John asleep. About that same time, he says, guys, wake up. Can't you pray tarry with me just one hour? My soul is heavy. And then he leaves them again. And he goes and prays for the second time. Somewhere around 11, and I'm basing this on what has to happen later, really. So somewhere around 11, Jesus returns to once again find Peter, James, and John asleep. He lets them sleep this time. It's like, these guys are so worn out, so exhausted, and what I really need is to go be with my father. So he leaves again, and sometime around 11, then he goes off and prays for the third time, comes back about midnight, and awakens the disciples with the news that my, the one who's going to betray me is at hand. This is all about to spin out of control. Stand up and wake up. Here we go. Somewhere about 12.10, Jesus is arrested. Around 2 a.m., then the trial before the chief priest, the high priest, Caiaphas, and some of the other chief priests begins. Not the whole Sanhedrin yet. Right now, it's just a few of the key leaders. Then around 5.30, the chief priest and his, uh, or the high priest and the chief priest are ready to take Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin. And a little while later, I'm thinking around 6 in the morning, Jesus is taken to Pilate, 
the Roman governor, um, and he has his trials then before Pilate, before Herod, and then back again before Pilate. And around eight in the morning, Pilate sentences Jesus. That's as far as we're going to try to go today. I mean, in terms of timeline, I'm not done teaching yet. <laughs> wow. So, after we think about that fateful timeline, the next thing is, what do we do about Judas? What about all those questions? And there are some questions we'll never have the answer to. What, didn't, what did Judas know and when did he know it? Right? About who he was, what he was going to do. When did Jesus know about Judas? Or what did Jesus know and when did he know it? Um, those are questions we're, we can discuss. We're not going to be able to discuss them tonight. But I want to take a quick look at what we do know about Judas. First of all, his name, Judas Iscariot. Um, sometimes called the son of Simon. Uh, Judas Iscariot means Judas from Cariot or uh, the city of Carioth. So Judas from the city of Carioth, which is a city in Judea, which makes Judas the only disciple not from Galilee. Kind of interesting. No record in any of the Gospels of Jesus calling Judas to become one of his disciples. But he's listed amongst the disciples from the very earliest lists. So he's been a disciple pretty much the whole time. We just don't know exactly when Jesus called him. We know that Judas was the treasurer for the group. So he was trusted to keep the monies that would be donated to the group for food and, and that sort of a thing. And we also know that he was a thief. That he stole money and Jesus knew. Uh, way back in John chapter 12, we know that Jesus knew that he was a thief. And yet somehow there was a redemptive um, um, hope in Jesus, I think. So uh, why did Judas betray Jesus? And <clears throat> let's just take a look at a passage of scripture. Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 and following. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper... A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Well, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. And Judas thinking, and some of it skimmed off for me. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. He wasn't trying to downplay that. It's just that that's not going to end until his kingdom is fully established. The poor you will always have with you, but I, you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will be, also will be told in memory of her. And then, one of the twelve, the one called Judas, Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests. Do you see the cause and effect? Jesus is talking about his burial... 
clearly he's not the one who's going to restore um, the, the, the righteous reign of Solomon and David on the earth. He's not going to drive the Romans out. He's talking again about his dying. He's not who Judas was bargaining for or expecting. And so he left. He went, this is going south. This can't continue. This has got to be stopped. He's not the Messiah we were expecting. So he went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? Isn't that an odd question? What a greedy thing. What a self-centered thing. What a, what a strange way to start the process. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And you can put a little note there, Zechariah 11:12, I think is the reference for where that's prophesied. And from then on, from somewhere Tuesday late afternoon, early evening, Judas was watching for an opportunity to hand him over. So we know why Judas would do what he was going to do. This Jesus isn't who I expected. He isn't who I wanted. He isn't who we need. He isn't the one we were told to expect. But why did the priests, why did the chief priests need Judas? I mean, why would Caiaphas need to employ his services? Why would Caiaphas trust something so important to a person who was willing to betray the man he had just spent three years following? I mean, if, you can't, if Jesus couldn't trust him, why should Caiaphas, the high priest, be able to trust him? Why would Judas offer, or what would Judas offer the priests that they couldn't do on their own, by their own political clout? They had an amazing political influence in Jerusalem. What could he bring to the table that they couldn't handle on their own? And, and why 30 pieces of silver? I mean, even by today's exchange rate, that's not very much money. And again, Zechariah eleven twelve, at least in part, he was given the money because it's the way God had ordained it was going to be. So Judas could not be considered just an ordinary informant. You cannot look at Judas, his relationship with Jesus, Caiaphas, his political power, and the desire of the high priest and the chief priests to have Jesus' life taken from him. You cannot consider Judas just an ordinary informant ready to lead the authorities to a secret hiding place. Jesus is going to be hiding over behind. I mean, Jesus wasn't hiding anywhere. He hadn't been hiding anywhere all week long. He'd been in town, either Jerusalem or Bethany, for the better part of a week. Uh, he was well enough known in the community, his travel patterns were well enough known that the whole town came out on Palm Sunday, right? The whole town came out, knew he was coming in, broke off palm branches, prepared for this amazing parade. He wasn't hiding. He was eating at the supper of Simon the leper on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of that week. He openly walked from Bethany to Jerusalem each morning and back to Bethany each night. There were plenty of opportunities for the chief priests to arrest Jesus. So why didn't they? And what was it that Judas could offer that was going to help? What could Judas bring to the table? 
Well, the, the standard answer is that the chief priests were afraid of the people, right? Well, they can't arrest Jesus for fear of the people. And that's true. That's absolutely true. But I don't think that that explains all of it. Um, it's significant, absolutely. But there, I think there was another issue. I think there was another concern that they had, which was why they needed Judas. Because having Judas wouldn't make the people any less upset about Jesus being arrested, right? I mean, if they were arresting Jesus, even with Judas giving them the tip off, they're still arresting Jesus. And the people are still going to be upset about that. So what was it they were concerned about? And how did Judas help with all of that? What was it that would force them to go to insurmountable lengths that Thursday night into Friday morning um, to avoid the wrath of the people? Um, I, I think that the answer is simply this. I think they were terrified of what Jesus might do. Certainly everyone in Jerusalem knew about all the miracles he had performed, right? They knew about the demons he expelled, the blind people he had given sight to, the dead people he raised back to life. This was a man who demonstrably was showing the power of God. You want to lay your hands on that man? Uh, so if, if he could do those things, if he could raise the dead, if he could restore sight to the blind, if he could drive out the demons, what else was he willing to do? What might this Jesus do to someone who was trying to arrest him? I mean, they're certainly dealing with an unknown and incalculable power, right? I mean, who can raise the dead? Who can restore blind, uh, sight to the blind and all of that? The, the size and the scope of the crowd that they sent to arrest Jesus, I think, speaks into this. we got to have a, a lot of power there because we don't know what Jesus might do. We're concerned about him uh, doing what, who knows what. I mean, Jesus himself told the disciples when they're there at the garden and the arrest was beginning to take place, he said, don't you know that I could call down uh, 12 legions of angels to protect me? In Roman times, a legion was 6,000 soldiers. Now, I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night, but I think that 6 times 12 is just about, 6,000 times 12 is 72,000 angels. Now, nobody could prevail against one angel, right? Can you imagine 72,000? It's like, we got to have our ducks in a row if we're going to try arresting Jesus. And that's where Judas came in. Judas would allow them to get their ducks in a row so that they could arrest Jesus. Um, there were some other hoops to jump through, but um, they were glad to have Jesus on their payroll for at least two reasons. Number one, it would have been disastrous for their attempt to arrest Jesus to have been unsuccessful. If they had not been able to actually execute the arrest and pull it off, their careers were over. There was no room for failure here. This had to be done right, and it had to be done at the right time. And they were also very concerned. Now understand, right now, Thursday is Passover. Tomorrow starts 
the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is going to go for seven days. And for seven days, the city is going to be swarming with people from all over the world to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Jerusalem. So they knew that if they were to arrest Jesus, even if Judas was able to make that happen and Jesus didn't turn them all into stone, if they were able to arrest Jesus, they still knew that they had to have a way to make the, uh, the trial and the crucifixion and the burial all happen in a short amount of time. So it was great to have Judas on the payroll who could bring them to arrest Jesus at just the right time, at just the right place, with just the right exposure. And so that's by way of introduction. Um, and I don't mean just a regular, laying the foundation. Yes, that's the introduction. I'm going another three hours. I hope you all brought a protein bar because you're okay. Now we're going to go into what I've simply called the frantic hours because there is going to start a whirlwind of activity here um, that I had never really thought about until I started to study this. Um, when someone asked me the question, What about Judas? The first part of the frantic hours is going to be hurried conversations within the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin would be 70 leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees, that made up the ruling board in Jerusalem. They really had incredible political power, um, and they also had great. Pre, uh, um, prestige in the eyes of the people and so we have this weird timeline in the in the midst of this so Judas came think about this with me he came to the high priest and the chief priests on Tuesday and said I'm going to betray Jesus to you I'm going to turn him into you and yet why did it take from 730 on Thursday night when Judas told the high priest it was time until 11.30 or 12 for them to arrest Jesus. Clearly they had done no prep once Judas said, I'm down for this, I'm going for it. They did nothing the rest of Tuesday. They did nothing Wednesday. They did nothing the first part of Thursday. Because if Judas had come to the high priest and said, Jesus is on his way to the garden, you can arrest him there, and they had everything all lined up, it would have been super simple for them to say, okay, guys, go get Jesus. They would have arrested him before he ever got into the garden, before the guys got settled, before, I mean, what a better time to do it than when they were still in transit. They could have easily arrested Jesus an hour later, but they weren't ready. And because they weren't ready, now began this whirlwind of activity. Um, Judas arrived, and then the high priest and the chief priests had to ask themselves, um, this question is it possible for us to get this done in the next 13 or so hours is it possible 
we cannot arrest Jesus and have him in prison over the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That will not work. We cannot do that. So we have to arrest him, try him, get Pilate, the Roman governor, to agree with our verdict, sentence him to death, get him on the cross, get him crucified and off the cross before sunset on Friday when the Feast of Unleavened Bread would begin. Can we do this? Is there any possible way we can make all of this happen in the next 12 or 16 hours? That was the question. And so to begin to answer that question in this frantic activity within the Sanhedrin, I can picture it this way. There were maybe five or six chief priests and the high priest. And they said, all right, if this is going to happen, we have to know that when we bring Jesus to the Sanhedrin and we bring him there on whatever charge we can finally land on, that they are going to agree with our verdict and say he must be sentenced to death. And so there are guys running to some members of the Sanhedrin and saying, this is what's going to happen. Will you vote to execute Jesus? And then they're running back to Caiaphas and saying, they really don't want to do that. They think it's way too dangerous. And Caiaphas saying, okay, go back and tell them that if they do this, they're going to get an extra three acres of land right outside the city gate. And, oh, okay, so and they went back and, and they're going back and forth and they're negotiating and they're all this political trading and wheeling and dealing until finally, they've got all the Sanhedrin bribed, coerced, blackmailed, enough that they say, okay, you go ahead, do your little trial. When you come to us, we'll vote the way you want us to vote. How many find that disgusting? And yet that had to have been what happened because nothing that they brought to the Sanhedrin would have justified what the Sanhedrin did. And they all knew it. So they're running back and forth, working to be sure that they've got this all sorted out, that the Sanhedrin is all lined up. Then, once the Sanhedrin was on board, there was one critical conversation outside the Sanhedrin that had to take place. Caiaphas would need to arrange things with Pilate. See, once the Sanhedrin was all set, Pilate himself was going to need to make a late night visit. Now, think about this. We're talking like, it's 11 o'clock at night, folks. Well past my bedtime. Well past a lot of their bedtimes, well past normal business hours, well past the time when you expect any of this kind of stuff to be going on. And Caiaphas was clearly the only one with the political clout to go to Pilate at this time of day and say, Mr. Pilate, we need to talk. We got an issue and we need to talk. So somewhere between 9.30 and 11, most likely around 11, Caiaphas shows up at the Roman palace. Now, he can't go in because the Feast of Unleavened Bread starts tomorrow. And for a Jew, a Jewish leader, to step foot in the home of a pagan would make him unclean for seven days. 
So, first of all, he had to have the audacity to say, Pilate, I need you to come out to see me. I can't come in to see you. So Pilate's already upset, don't you know it? It's like, who do you think you are? That you call me, I'm sitting in here, my wife is here, she's not always here, but she's here right now. Claudia is here, we're having a really nice glass of wine by a fire in our living room. We got, you know, a little Fox News, no. Um, they're just sitting there, relaxing, enjoying their, each other's company, and then the guard comes and says, Caiaphas is waiting outside and says he has to talk to you. Pilate goes out. And Caiaphas undoubtedly explained why they needed a death penalty on this Jewish prisoner. He gave the justification to Pilate that Jesus had been talking about how he was king of the Jews. And if he's king of the Jews, then that puts him in direct opposition to Caesar, right? I mean, who's in charge of Jerusalem right now and all of Israel? Caesar, by way of Herod, his governor. What would happen if Jesus was suddenly being proclaimed by all the people in Jerusalem and Israel as king? Well, that would be a huge collision course. And the one thing that the Roman government was big on was Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They would do almost anything to keep the peace of Rome, to keep people placated and quiet so they just keep paying their taxes. Just keep paying their taxes. So, after some negotiations, and again, I'm believing there was a lot of give and take and back and forth, and Pilate saying, if I agree to do this, then you people have got to give me something. I need you to stop bellyaching about this and stop, you know, control your people about that, and we got to stop having these, whatever. They, there was, I'm sure, wrangling that went on back and forth. But Pilate finally agreed, number one, to meet Caiaphas and Jesus the next morning out on the portico, again, because they couldn't come in, right? I just find that just the height of hypocrisy. And he had to agree to an early morning trial. How many of you know that if you're sitting up sipping wine with your wife at 11 o'clock at night, you're not ready for a trial at six in the morning the next day? That's, that's not Pilate's normal schedule. That's not what Pilate would normally do. Pilate would normally have court when it was convenient for him on the day and the time and the place that worked for him. But Caiaphas was insisting, no, no, no. It's got to be about 6 o'clock this morning at the very latest. And it's got to be at the portico outside. And we've got to have a guilty verdict arranged. We can't have a lot of time wasted here. If you're not going to agree that he needs to be crucified, then we're not going to bring him in. Finally, all of this was arranged. All the concessions were arranged from Pilate and from Caiaphas. And as Caiaphas was making his way out of the palace, Pilate went and rejoined Claudia. Now, is there anybody here, any husbands here, that can possibly imagine Claudia not saying, what was that all about? Right? You, you left me. I was here all by myself. You come back all upset. She's going to say, what was that all about? And I'm sure that when she said that, he told her all about um, 
there's, there's going to be this Jew coming, and it's going to be early tomorrow morning, and I got to meet him outside at the portico, and I got to pronounce him guilty of a crime worthy of death, and agree to crucify him. The reason I think that they had this conversation, first of all, is it's a very natural thing. Second of all, I think that this revelation of what was about to happen with Jesus and his crucifixion was what fueled her dream that night, where she had a dream and a revelation that made her send a note to her husband early the next morning, have nothing to do with this innocent man, right? She said, Pilate, don't agree anymore. Don't do it. Don't crucify him. Don't go along with these Jews. I'm not sure exactly how bad things are going to get for you if you do, but things are going to get bad for you. They're going to get bad for us. Don't do it, right? So Pilate's got that. He's also trying to sort out the next morning. But we move now quite quickly from leading up to all of this to the actual rest and trial itself. Once all the necessary arrangements were made with the Sanhedrin, all the wheeling and dealing, once all the necessary concessions and arrangements were made with Pilate, with the wheeling and dealing, now finally Caiaphas was able to order the arrest of Jesus. And so we read in Mark 14, 43, Judas, one of the 12, appeared with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs. In, in um, some of the gospel accounts, Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they said, well, Jesus. Um, and, and he said, well, I'm right here. I've, I've been in the marketplace every day this week. Uh, I was there. You could have you asked me to come in at any time. You didn't have to come out here in the night with torches and Roman soldiers and a crowd of people with um, sticks and, and whatever instruments they could find, screaming and shouting and riled up in the middle of the night. There was a crowd armed with swords and clubs. And then began the greatest mistrial of all time. I know that you've probably... Most of you have had a chance to hear and to think about and to study the trial of Jesus. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail uh, for a couple reasons. One is you've heard about it, and two is I'm running out of time. Um, but this, the greatest mistrial of all time, number one, you cannot in Jewish court hold a trial for life after dark. You can hold a trial for money, but you cannot... It's forbidden hold a trial for life after dark. How many of you know midnight is somewhere after dark? The beginning of this trial was illegal. Number two, and I find this just startling. If Pastor Jeremiah and I have seen Pastor John kill somebody, not likely, but we've seen you and I today, we go to the police, right? We fill out a complaint. Well, we may not, if we're, we're going to go to the police, go with me here. We're, he wants to know what Pastor John's got to offer. We're going to the police. The police are going to get a warrant from the prosecutor. The police are going to come and SWAT team him away, right? Not then in Israel. 
if Pastor J Jeremiah and I saw Pastor John do this heinous act, heinous act, the two of us would go and arrest Pastor John. The two of us would bring Pastor John before the high priests and present our charges. And the two of us, our testimony would have to agree line on line, precept on precept, right down to the very last not, note. So it was absolutely illegal, not only to start the trial after dark, but to send the Roman palace guard to arrest Jesus. That wasn't right. That wasn't done. Again, it was illegal. Also in a trial, as I'm sure you know, once the testimony of the witnesses would break down, if, you know, I said I saw Pastor John kill a woman and Pastor Jeremiah said, no, it was a man, it's all done. It's all done. It, nothing else can be done except we're likely to get stoned. And I don't mean in the good way. I'm sorry. I don't do that at all, and you don't do it anymore, so we're good. But at any rate, I'm <laughs> the penalty for false testimony was being stoned to death, which is why you don't bring false witnesses. What's why you don't bring false testimony? But Matthew 26, 60 says, many false witnesses came forward. It wasn't just two of them. There were many of them. And they kept trying to agree on different kinds of things that Jesus did. He's going to tear down the, the, the temple. He's going to, um, um, he claimed to be the son of God. He stirred up the people against Caesar. There was all kinds of things that they were saying. None of them agreeing with each other. And they had to keep going out in the street and saying, hey, wh what can you say about Jesus? You know, if we give you three uh, donkeys and some sheep, what will you say Jesus did? I mean, they were desperately trying to get two witnesses who could agree. When the testimonies didn't match in a Jewish trial, instantly the trial was over because the, most, the highest calling of the high priest at that point was to protect the accused, to protect the name and the reputation of the accused. So as soon as the two witnesses didn't agree, trial was over, they were going to be sentenced to a different kind of penalty, and um, the prisoner would be set free. Is that what happened? Not even close. So once Caiaphas had rejected all the various eyewitness testimony, it was totally illegal for him to do this. Jesus, are you the son of God? He couldn't ask Jesus a question. He couldn't ask Jesus to incriminate himself. He couldn't do anything legally except say, sorry for wasting your time, Jesus. Have a great rest of your life. So when Pilate, sorry, when Caiaphas asked this question, that was the final breach of all appropriate protocol. But when he said, are you the Christ, the son of God? And Jesus said, it is as you say it is. Boom. Pilate, sorry again. Caiaphas said, I've got all I need. He is saying he's God. And that cannot stand. If I go to the Sanhedrin and I say, here's a man who says he is God, they're all going to go, okay, we're willing to agree with that verdict that he needs to be sentenced because that is blasphemy in the highest order.
right? So that's that horrible mistrial. But then we see this great miscarriage of justice. Finally now, it's somewhere around six in the morning. They've gone through the trial before the high priests beginning at about 2.30. They've gone through the Sanhedrin at about 5.30. Now it's about six o'clock in the morning when they show up and Pilate stumbles out of his home onto the portico or the porch outside of the palace. No doubt, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin thought all the have lifting is done, right? We've done all the work. We've got everything lined up. We're here in front of Pilate. We've already agreed on the, the sentence. We're just going to coast through this and go home. It didn't go that way, which is a curious thing. It's a curious thing what we're about to see in the interaction between Caiaphas and Pilate when we stop to think about what we can know of who Pilate was. Pilate was a Roman soldier. He was, you know, he had risen in battle. I mean, like he's a top Navy SEAL or a top Ranger or, you know, he's one of the guys that if you're going to go into a horrible place and try to do the impossible, you want him on your team, right? He's this Roman soldier, rough, crude, tough. Don't nobody stop me. <coughs> I'm just getting a little choked up. For many years, he rose through the ranks in uh, Germany where they were fighting the hordes that were trying to sweep down out of the north. And if you've seen any of you've seen movies that depict that, they were, those were horrible, bloody, violent uh, just wicked battles and he uh, um, just excelled so well in being a soldier that he kept rising in the ranks as um, um, one who was getting the job done so he was um, not good at being diplomatic there's many examples of that that we don't have a, uh, time to go into but he was used to one thing getting what he wanted and he was used to, uh, he was known for doing one thing being decisive and determined he knew what he wanted and he got it that was pilot i know what i want and i go get it so then why in the world would this pilot waffle when confronted with jesus what was it about jesus i mean think about it He's got the reputation of being hard-hearted, hard-headed, and yet at least five times he tries to sidestep the whole thing. At least five times. First of all, when Jesus is brought into the courtyard, Pilate takes him on into the palace and has a chat with him and talks to him about what the Jews are saying and what do you say and what do you think. And he has this, I think, a, a fairly reasonable and level-headed conversation with Jesus such that he comes back out with Jesus back on the portico and he says to Caiaphas when they'd already agreed on the charge against Jesus what charge do you bring against this man in other words I've been in there talking I don't see anything of what we talked about last night what charge do you bring I'm, I'm ready to be done first time he waffles so then 
You got to know Caiaphas is so angry right now. He's thinking, listen, Pilate, I was here last night. We worked this all out. I told you who we were bringing. I told you what he had said. I told you what the charge was going to be. I told you what the sentence had to be. You agreed to it. Why are you bringing him back out right now? And why are you asking me this question about what charge do you bring against this man? That's why they say with frust such frustration, we wouldn't bring him to you if he wasn't a criminal. I mean, can't you just hear Caiaphas like, what in the world are you doing, Pilate? Can't you just do what you said you're going to do? At which point then Pilate said, then you judge him by your own law. And that's the second time Pilate waffles and says, I don't want to do what I said I would do to Jesus. Then when Pilate hears that Jesus is from Galilee, what does he do? He trots Jesus off to see Herod. Third time he tries to get out of it. Herod sends him back. Pilate again says he finds nothing worthy of death in Jesus and intends to simply beat him and send him away to release him and crucify Barabbas and the other prisoner. But the chief priest... So... so um, He's, that's the fourth time he's waffled. I'm just going to beat him and send him away. But the chief priests stir up the crowd, right? And they begin to shout, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. What will you do with Barabbas? Or what will you do with this man? Crucify him. What about Barabbas? You know, uh, we want Barabbas. So Pilate, fifth waffling, says, can't I give you Jesus instead of Barabbas? And they go, no. Sixth time. He waffles. Finally, he says, walks over to a basin and says, I wash my hands of this innocent man's blood. Do with him as you will. And sentences Jesus to be crucified. In a couple weeks, we'll have a chance to unpack that together. Um, it's going to be a great teaching at least that's where the Holy Spirit has us heading right now. How I many you know, if the Holy Spirit changes the setting on the sails, we're going to change with it, right? But it's good to have a plan and let God then change it if he wants to. So, um, oh my goodness. Is that clock? That clock can't be right. While getting a perspective on this significant timeline is great, I think there's some profound things we can learn about this whole encounter with Judas. And one thing that really struck me is this. Judas has left the upper supper. Jesus knows where he's going. Judas is going to betray him. They're going to come arrest him. And within less than 12 hours or about 12 hours, he's going to be being crucified. I don't know about you, but my mind would be on what in the world have I gotten myself into and how am I ever going to get through this? But you know who Jesus' mind was on? You, us. Everything in John 14 through 17 happened between 7.30 and 8.30 on Thursday night. Read through that. It is so powerful to think about 
what Jesus was getting ready to experience and yet what he was talking about and thinking about, concerned about. I mean, he starts off in 14.1 with, don't let your hearts be troubled. He said, I know things are going to get crazy. It's okay. I've overcome the world. Chapter 27, my peace I'm going to leave with you. I'm going to give you a peace that the world can't begin to understand because I love you so much. Do you hear this, this heart of Jesus for his people, for us, his people? Chapter 15, verse 5, he says, remain in me and I'll remain in you and you will bear fruit. Who here doesn't want to bear fruit? Fruit that will last. How many of us dream of having a life that matters, that's significant, that is effective? Jesus said, while crucifixion was bearing down on him, if you'll just remain in me, you'll get the fruitful life you wanted. In verse 9 of chapter 15, he says, as the Father loved me, I love you. Hear this, I love you, Jesus said. He said, reminds him in chapter uh, 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, remember it, they hated me first. Don't be surprised. We'll get through this together. Chapter 16, verse 13, he says, I'm just about to send my Holy Spirit and he's going to guide you into all truth. All truth. Do you need to know what to do tonight? Holy Spirit's going to guide you. you. Need to know what to do with your future? Holy Spirit's going to guide you. you. Need to know where to invest your money? Holy Spirit's going to guide you. Need to know how to pray? Holy Spirit's going to guide you. As Jesus was about to be crucified, his concern at this point was only that you and I would know that the Spirit is going to guide us into all truth. Chapter 16, verse 23. My Father will give you whatever you ask because He loves you. He had already said, I love you. Now He's saying, the Father loves you. What more could you and I want? To be loved in this perfect way by a perfect Father. Chapter 17 he prays for himself. Then in verse 6, he starts to pray for his disciples. Then in chapter 20, uh, verse seven, 20, he prays for us. And he says, here's the thing. Those that are going to come to faith because of the work of my disciples, I want them to be one with one another and to know that they are loved. Wow. I don't know if you saw yourself anywhere in John 14 to 17, but we thought it'd just be great if you did and you want.